Welcome to episode 12 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is May 30th, 2020. And in our episode, we're going to discuss cultural and religious responses to infectious disease in the late ancient world. Today's episode, we're going to look at how people in the late ancient world, so roughly say 300 to 800 CE, wrote about the experience of disease outbreaks and their particular cultural and often Christian religious context. Now, authors in the past didn't analyze infectious diseases, outbreaks, pandemics, like we do today in terms of numbers of deaths and economic effects, but in other ways, which we would like to explore today. Our guest today is Professor Chris DeVette. Chris is an associate professor in the Department of Biblical and Ancient Studies in the University of South Africa with wide-ranging interests in late antique world. These include early Christian attitudes about slavery, medicine, health and disability, masculinity, and religious conflict, to name just a few. Chris is the author of two books. The first is Preaching Bondage, John Chrysostom and the Discourse of Slavery in Early Christianity in 2015, and The Unbound God, Slavery and the Formation of Early Christian Thought in 2018. He's also the author of more articles than I could count. I was starting to scroll on his screen and I had to go down quite a bit. Uh, so that means a lot. I did want to mention one article, though, mostly because I love the name. It was a 2016 article in the Journal of Early Christian Studies entitled Grumpy Old Men, Gender, Gerontology, and the Geriatrics of Soul in John Chrysostom. So Chris is also at work on a new monograph on early Christian experiences of and responses to plagues, from which he recently gave a talk entitled the care of the soul in a time of plague. So hi, Chris. Hi, uh, Lee. Hi, Mulk. It's wonderful to be with you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for being on the show. And as usual in our episodes, we'll begin by describing the local effects of COVID-19 wherever we're at. So let's start with you, Merle. How, how are you? I mean, was there anything unusual in Annapolis this past week? So we're officially now from the county exec going to be starting our phased openings. Um, I think June 1st. And so that's happening. Uh, I'm not going to be going downtown still. I drove through downtown with my kids the other day and there were packs of younger people, let's just say, walking around without masks, which seemed not ideal. So I will still be avoiding that. The, the big hot commodity change we got is we got a little pool for our backyard. Um, which are very hard to come by, I understand. You know, especially those hard-sided small kiddie pools, they're actually really hard to find. So we're very pleased we managed to find one. This is a soft-sided one. So we filled the pool this morning and they played in the water for a long period of time. So that how, was quite... How large is this pool? Uh, it might be about, I don't know, five feet in diameter or so. And then it can probably hold about a foot and a half, maybe two feet of water high. Yeah. I think it's going to kill the grass that it's sitting on, but that's a whole other separate issue. I've become very protective of my grass. I'm a you know, nice suburban dad now, Lee. Yeah, you have to mow the lawn around it now. Well, we're going to move it, so I'm mowing tomorrow, not today. But that's neither here nor there. So how are things in Jerusalem, Lee? So here things are almost back to normal. I actually visited my office this week. It was the same as I left it, although they did install new lighting and new fans, which was pretty nice. I also, today, earlier today, I went to the old city in Jerusalem, like I actually said I would on this podcast. And I went to all our favorite restaurants that I eat, like the favorite foods and everything. 
Did you eat the hummus from the hummus place? Yeah, we ate the hummus from the hummus place. We ate the knafe from the knafe place. Yeah, lot, lot, lots of good, good, good places. And other than that, I think Israeli media has been less attentive to COVID-19 here and more attentive to things that happen outside of Israel, specifically the United States. So once the United States passed the 100,000 deaths mark, and that created quite a lot of attention here, and the recent protests in, in the U.S. have also drawn quite a lot of attention. Yeah. So Chris, where are you? Maybe you can tell our listeners, and then what is it like there? Yeah, uh, so I'm currently at home in uh, Pretoria. Uh, Pretoria is the mother city, um, the capital city at least of uh, South Africa. Uh, and uh, uh, we have been under lockdown for two months uh, now, a little bit more than two months. And uh, we've, we've managed it quite well, but um, at this stage they've put in levels of lockdown. So initially we were on level five lockdown, which meant like everything was just closed and, and you know you weren't allowed to leave at all uh, only essential services and so forth and now, and then and then we went to level 4 which we're on now which was sort of almost the same but but you could go out and exercise for 2 hours a day um and then so it's a big time now because on monday we're moving to level 3 uh which means that the economy is being opened up this is happening at the same time that we are approaching the peak of our infection rates unfortunately. So we've had the lockdown in order to sort of prepare for, for the wave of infections that are coming. It's interesting that in Africa, our mortality rates have not been that high as in other places. Um, of course, I'm sure more research will be done and the numbers will be analyzed in more detail, but some initial uh, studies have suggested that because we get um, vaccinations for diseases like tuberculosis and that sort of thing at an early age we might be more resistant i don't know if that's true but our mortality rates are much lower it's it's at this stage 1.9 percent so but 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 it's a scary time for us because we know we are entering the the peak it's winter now so so that's another problem but the biggest talk of the town here with regards to the lockdown is during lockdown no one was allowed to purchase alcohol or cigarettes I don't smoke, uh, but I feel for the poor smokers, and it's been a major political issue. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that. I know explicitly here in some states, they purposely left open liquor stores because they were fearful that alcoholics would essentially start dying without alcohol. Um, that's at least what I was told. I know some states closed it down, so I think it was, it was Pennsylvania closed it down because they're state-run liquor stores. Each state does it differently. And basically, you had like mile long lines outside the liquor stores like the day before, because I mean, I'm, I'm drinking not a lot, but a lot more than I used to, right, which means like a glass of wine a night, that's about the limit, but that's still more than I used to have, which was maybe twice a week. Yeah, so it's, it's yeah, I mean, alcohol was prohibited. Now we will be able to buy alcohol again from Monday, but cigarettes are still, are still banned. And it's, it's really been a very interesting thing uh, here that they've banned that. So, so what's the rationale for that? Why have they banned both those things? So, well, 
whether you call it rationale. <laughs> uh, it's not rational, at least. It is, uh, the rationale is that uh, it's a health risk. There's this idea that people share cigarettes, uh, but I, I, I really, I'm really not sure what the logic is behind it. But basically that smoking is, is bad for you, smoking is bad for your lungs, this is a, this is a respiratory disease. So not good to smoke, but you know, a lot of people will say, well, uh, people who have been smoking for years have bad lungs anyway. So, so, so starting to smoke now <laughs> during the lockdown or stopping, probably won't make any difference. Um, the problem is, of course, people are still smoking, yeah, but they are now um, buying illegal cigarettes. So the illicit cigarette trade is, is, is really booming. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I heard I mean, anywhere prohibiting smoking or prohibiting the sale of cigarettes. Yeah, it happens here. <laughs> okay, so I guess we can start off the discussion. So I'll start with a broad question. Could you try to, to define what's a discursive approach and, and how does it fit with literary criticism or what we call literary criticism more broadly? So basically, literary, a discursive approach uh, is an approach especially um, developed and especially popularized by the French philosopher Michel Foucault, although others have also been doing it, but Foucault is, is, is popular in, in that respect. So it's an approach that analyzes discourses. And when we speak of discourse, uh, and, and here's the sort of academic answer to this, uh, discourse refers to the way, uh, to the dynamic way at least, uh, in which knowledge and the meaning of an idea, for instance, a plague or a virus, uh, are constituted and enunciated and its uh, effects. So it's a type of language in practice, if you will, now, that sounds very technical and complicated, but it just means that we ask how certain ways of speaking, for instance, the way we speak about a virus or a plague, impacts uh, individuals, societies, politics, and so on. So, to, to paraphrase Foucault a bit, uh, it's a discursive approach is interested in what what we say does, essentially. Um, within literary criticism, uh, it's typically a postmodern form of literary criticism, and it is uh, characterized, in most cases at least, with a suspicion for more positivistic or structural approaches to literature and history. Um, so what this means is that a discursive approach usually asks uh, some of the difficult questions, uh, particularly uh, what are the dynamics and strategies of power structures and power institutions behind certain ways of speaking. So it's about language. Uh, it's about the way we speak about things. Can you maybe give us an example? You've given us a couple broad examples about plagues and viruses, but maybe an example how we apply it to a source um, or how we would go about applying it to a source. And then maybe we'll talk about one in a minute. Yeah, so it concerns a lot of reading between the lines, reading behind the lines, uh, and even reading against the lines. Um, uh, so I work with ancient texts, which means that I a lot of my work is archival um, uh, and, and it's, it's literary. So it's, it's maybe easier for me than for others. But the, the way I would ap apply it in a source is I would identify a concept. So a good example in my previous work, I looked at how slavery uh, functioned as a discourse. And then I ask how this concept as a way of speaking uh, works in a text and a context. 
what does it do, in other words? So for instance, with slavery, I noticed that slavery was not just used to speak about people who were really physically and institutionally enslaved, but it was also used to refer to many psychosocial and cultural phenomena. It was used to speak about a person's gender, especially their masculinity. Uh, it was also used to speak about one's uh, psychological and even physical health. Uh, and in fact, I actually became interested in ancient healthcare and ancient medicine and illness and plagues because of the potent medical aspects of slavery. Uh, as a discourse. Concepts like addiction, for instance, uh, is in antiquity seen as a form of slavery. Uh, so that's an example from slavery. So for the past two years or so, I've been interested in how the idea of a virus or a plague works as a discourse. And considering what's happening now with COVID-19, it's, it's quite timely and, and I'm getting a lot of new insights on how this uh, idea of plague and pandemic and virus as a discourse. And it's not only metaphor, of course, it, it concerns metaphor, but it's also much more than metaphor, um, how this functions in society. Yeah, we'll get to how this relates to COVID-19 later on. That's an interesting angle that, that we should explore further. But before we do that, let's, let's do a deeper dive on, on one specific source. So I mentioned earlier on that we, we heard your talk about John of Ephesus. So could you tell us a bit, give us some background on John, who he was, when he wrote, and then try to apply the, the, the discursive approach to him? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so John of Ephesus is uh, uh, one of the lesser known, perhaps, um, uh, figures of ancient Christianity. He was a missionary from the town of, Am of Amida in late antique Mesopotamia, and he lived from about 507 to 586 of the Common Era. Uh, he was he's especially known for his anti-Chalcedonian, uh, what we used to call monophysite or myophysite views. In other words, he went against the proclamations of the Council, Council of Chalcedon. Uh, John wrote in Syriac, which is sort of a late form of Aramaic, and um, he wrote several works. Uh, one of his surviving works is A History of Monks, a very, very interesting text that gives a number of vitae stories about these very, very interesting, sometimes quite weird uh, figures, uh, monastic figures from late antiquity. Um, but then the important text for what we're talking about now is, of course, a section in his uh, church history uh, in which he gives an account of the of the plague of Justinian. Now, the, unfortunately, this source is actually lost. Uh, we don't have this source, but we do have fragments of it in another source that has been preserved by um, a later 8th century work by an unknown author, often known as uh, Pseudo Dionysius of Talmachra. Uh, and he reproduces John's account of the plague in that uh, chronicle of his, the so called. Chronicle of Zipnin. We also have other uh, texts from John that tells us something about that. Can I ask you a question that I've always wondered, and you seem the person to, to answer this question. Why is it that John is more overlooked as a source than many other sources, right? I mean, you talked about these, especially the history, right? You talked about that it's fragmentary, which obviously has problems, but we have so few good histories, right, from the time period late antiquity in general, it seems like someone would have come and said, let me use this and explore this source. Because when I first started reading John of Ephesus, and I just read it um, in translation, 
I mean, so much of what he says about plague and about other things seemed very obvious to me that no one had ever thought about these things. So I'm curious why you think he's been overlooked, perhaps. That's a very interesting question. Um, of course, it's, it's, it's difficult to exactly say why, but I think one of the main reasons why John uh, is overlooked, uh, on the one hand, might be because of the language. So traditionally, the, the, the field of early Christian studies and later ancient studies, uh, there was initially, uh, when it was still called patristics, there was still uh, a great emphasis on Greek and Latin sources. So a lot of people were working on Augustine. A lot of people were working on Chrysostom as well, for instance, and all these uh, sort of golden figures of uh, the early church and the Syriac church fathers, with the exception perhaps of Ephraim, were really left behind in many, in many ways. So I think one of the reasons, Mill might be because John wrote in Syriac, and the Syriac sources have, have been uh, marginalized. Although the good news is, uh, for the past uh, maybe decade or two, the Syriac sources and Syriac studies generally uh, have been making a great comeback. And people are starting to notice uh, these Syriac authors. But if you still do a, a run on a database and you look at how many, how many secondary studies of John of Ephesus pops up in comparison to Augustine or someone, you, know, you can't compare. Yeah, that's what I think I noticed it because I went and asked someone, I mean, I got my PhD at Princeton and we're a center of Syriac studies. Um, and so for me, that people would overlook Syriac is kind of, I've never even thought that because it's always been ingrained in my graduate education. But when I did that exact study and then I asked around to people, they said there's a couple of unpublished PhD dissertations and that was really it. And so that kind of blew my mind. Uh, yeah, and it's um, interesting that uh, John's, uh, most of John's writings are actually translated. So uh, they are accessible and they are actually freely available on the internet. Uh, most of them, at least. Uh, so it's there. People just need to read them. Yeah, that's what kind of, again, blew my mind. <laughs> you know, it's not as if it's just in the Syriac, but that's for a longer discussion. So, so I had another question, though. So you mentioned that uh, John's history hasn't survived, or at least hasn't survived entirely, and it has been transmitted through a different text, the Chronicle of Zuknin. Now, do we have any doubts about this transmission? Are we sure that we have John's entire account? Are there any concerns about maybe some of these additions or abbreviations to his account? Yeah, that's, that's a very important question. Um, so a general comment first, we're never sure about any text of antiquity because they have these manuscript traditions. Uh, another author that I work on, uh, John Chrysostom, he, he's, he, his manuscript tradition is so so tricky um, uh, that you're never sure what you're reading and often the product that you look at today that is a certain text or a work is the product of a manuscript tradition and not the original text. So it's there are always doubts. We never really know what we're reading. But, but on the other hand, there are some ways that we can deal with what we have. So with John, with John of Ephesus at least, we have the account of the plague in the Chronicle of Zuknin. Uh, but then there's also uh, another text where we have the same uh, account of the plague, which is in, um, in fragments of lands. Uh, it's called, uh, the, the author is, or the, at least the editor is, is Land. His surname is Land, and it's um, Anecdota Syriaca. So we also have, uh, at least, we're, we're fortunate to have another tradition and these two traditions, interestingly enough, manuscript traditions at least, are more or less 
the same. There are some very, very minor differences, but not so serious that it would that we should doubt the integrity. So I think I think when we read the the account in these, and it's important to look at both. Uh, one should look at the account in the Chronicle of Zipmin, but it's important to also look at the Anecdota Syriaca. And in fact, there are fragments in other authors as well, like Michael the Syrian, which don't actually occur in either of those other two. So, so it's a bit of a puzzle. You know, you need to build a puzzle with these texts. And, and for me, it's fun. <laughs> for other people, they might think I'm crazy. But uh, that's part of the fun of working with this stuff. So, um, but I think we can sort of rely on the account as much as we probably could. Okay, so then this leads us into a, a, a natural follow-up. What is John's account of the plague during his time period, during the plague of Justinian? Yeah, so um, he gives us quite a long description of the plague. Um, it's, it's, it's really very detailed, and it's quite disturbing to read. So anyone who's listening and think, you know, I want to go and read John's account of the plague, uh, that's great. I, I hope more people will actually go and read it uh, after listening to this. But be warned, it's it's really very, very graphic. It's very visceral. And I'll say something later about this as well, but reading it in our day and age with COVID-19 is, is, is also, uh, it holds its challenges. But so basically, John tells us how the plague started. Uh, he says it starts in Egypt. And then it's as if the plague almost becomes personified in John's works. It's, it's as if this plague is alive. And, it's, and as he, because he's a missionary, as I said, so he was traveling back to Constantinople. And as he's traveling back, John and his companions notice how this plague, it's, it's almost like it's following them. It's like it's stalking them. And it's, it's closing in on uh, Constantinople. And then uh, eventually, it, of course, uh, while John is there, uh, the plague hits Constantinople, and it really hits in a very bad way, I think. I don't think, it, uh, as you have also shown in your work, I don't think it was like that everywhere, but I think densely populated areas were really badly hit by this. So, um, so John experienced the plague firsthand. He is an eyewitness, but he actually writes his account three years later. So my argument uh, in the work that I'm doing and in the video that you mentioned um, is that I think there are two things going on here. Number one, I think John is writing this account of the plague as a form of catharsis. It's a type of cathartic writing. I think he's trying to deal with the trauma that he experienced. I mean, if you could see so many people uh, bodies lying in the streets, bodies being discarded, uh, even if it's not on a mass scale, it, it would traumatize a person. So I think John suffered of what we would call today PTSD. And I think he's writing this to sort of deal with what he experienced. He's writing this to deal with his grief. He might even have been depressed. Uh, he says this. He says these things in his account. It's, it's uh, very moving. Uh, so I think it's a way that John is uh, dealing with it. And it's very visceral. As I said, he tells of, um, it's, it's also almost mythological in a sense. He speaks of uh, these sort of phantom, phantom beings on, on, sh on deserted ships that everyone might have been killed by the plague. And he sees these sort of scary figures on the ocean. There's a lot of apocalyptic language. There's a lot of mythological language intertwined 
in his descriptions of the plague, uh, demons. Uh, his account of the plague is full of demons, full of angels. So he really takes this experience of the, just, of the pandemic in the time of Justinian, and he firmly positions it within his own worldview, within his own spirit world, and he tries to make sense of that uh, through these uh, accounts. So one thing I think you're nicely pointing out to us, especially this this last part you just mentioned, is how he does it through his own thinking, right? I mean, we don't get, you know, a good, say, mortality count. We don't get, you know, what's happening with the economics of closing down the city or not. Um, but it's within his own mentality, his own way of thinking. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, you're, you're absolutely correct, Maul. Uh, uh, he's uh, he's doing it within his own frame of reference. I always say to to my students, uh, we need to be very careful with ancient numbers. You know, uh, they aren't always what they seem. But what's interesting, he does give numbers, uh, and it's interesting that we have another eyewitness source that's in Constantinople at the same time, probably, possibly, that John is, namely Procopius, and he gives numbers that are actually similar. Now, uh, of course, the question is. You know, how accurate are they? But but you're absolutely right. They are not interested in the things that we are often interested in. They they don't give us figures. They don't give us statistics. Uh, he is telling his own story. This is John's narrative as a survivor of a, a pandemic. And we need to read it and respect it for what it is in that regard. So following that, could you kind of tell us some of the stories that, that John tells his audience? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, some of them are very, very interesting. Uh, the, the second thing that I think John is, on the one hand, is it's this cathartic writing, that, and he's trying to, to deal with his grief and the scale of what he saw. But the other thing that's, that comes out in his writing is um, he, he needs to make sense of this death on a massive scale. He needs to make sense. Why is this happening? How could it possibly happen? Uh, why is God allowing these things to happen? This is a question that often pops up. So he needs to give meaning and make sense of what he's doing. And one of the ways he is trying to make sense of this, he's trying to give meaning to this um, uh, terrible death that he, deaths that he's seeing, is to say that, well, it's also a form of chastisement. And interestingly enough, uh, one of the sins that God seems to really chastise with the plague is greed. So there are a lot of interesting stories that relate to greed and some economic issues of the plague. Now, uh, we, 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 we experience the economic issues of pandemics today as we sit here. And it was the same for John. Uh, and he's trying to make sense of it. So, so, what's, so some of the stories are actually quite repetitive. So one of the things is people are dying and the houses are abandoned. And in these houses, there are a lot of riches and wealth of the people who used to live there. But of course, the dead bodies might still be there in some cases. They are removed. So people are walking through the streets and looking into these houses and they're sort of thinking, well, maybe I can go and loot these houses or loot these shops. So the issue of looting comes up and, and, and robbing the dead, essentially. And so there's a lot of these stories that some of these looters go into the house and then they take their riches. And the moment they step out of the threshold of the house, they are struck down by an angel 
for instance. So uh, the interesting story about one gang of looters, they've got a little small boy who's with them and they rob the, they rob the place and everyone is then eventually struck down by an angel except the boy. And the boy is sort of sitting there scared, too scared to get out of the house. You know, it's almost like a forced quarantine, essentially. Uh, and people sort of ask, well, why are you trapped in this house? And he says, well, I can't leave because um, if I leave with any of these riches, then um, either the plague or the angel will, will kill me. In some cases, they die of plague. In some cases, they die because an angel smites them. Often, the, it seems that the angels are also the carrier of the plague, perhaps. Yeah, I think your story that you bring up very nicely, which is also one of the stories I really like from John of Ephesus, is often, as, as you talked about at the beginning, taken out of its context, right? And you'll discuss the abandoned houses and all the dead people in the, in the city, and then you'll forget the exact context of it, which is that story you just told of the greed, and that, if I remember correctly, right, everyone in the city died, right? I mean, and that the whole passage itself is set off in a very clearly this is a story I heard someone told to me and we just ignore that. And we just look at the, the reason for why it exists, which I think you've nicely traced out. Clearly there's a, a larger mentality behind this that he's tracing. That's absolutely correct, Mel. And that's where discourse and discursive analysis helps us because what we then realize is the discourse of plague is also a discourse, an economic discourse and a discourse in John, at least, that concerns greed. And if you take that out and you sort of strip it, you almost, in theology, we speak of the idea of demythologizing a text. The danger when you demythologize this text and you just want to look at the base skeletal facts, uh, you really miss the point of the whole narrative. Um, so that's that's definitely uh, that's definitely true. Uh, it's it's really uh, John seems really concerned with social and economic issues and social and economic justice. It's um, uh, for instance he starts the story of the plague in the Chronicle of Zuknin and also in the account of Michael the Syrian, with a very disturbing uh, beginning that he says grace was given to the poor because they died first and they were given proper burials. So the plague to them was a form of grace. It was a form of mercy. They, they died first, so they did not need to witness the horrors of what John saw, and they got a burial. You know, so it's, it's quite disturbing stuff, and one should not divorce it from its um, discursive and literary context. So do you have another source who, who might discuss a different epidemic or pandemic? and apply the same discursive approach to that source as well? Absolutely. Um, there are quite a few uh, we can choose. Um, an interesting one that I'm actually also using as sort of a gateway into the whole Justinianic plague and Christian responses to that is a, a bit of a mysterious plague that's called, well, one of the names for the plague is the so-called Plague of Cyprian. Uh, now, Cyprian was a church father who lived in the third century in uh, Roman North Africa, uh, in Carthage. And uh, Cyprian writes about this plague. He's not the only author who writes about a plague that occurred at this time, and it probably occurred between the year 250, more or less, and it might have continued for almost a decade. Uh, plagues had long shelf lives in these times. And he describes the plague as, uh, well, a plague as well. Um, and what's interesting when reading John is his account is very different from that of John of Ephesus. So where you have 
the account of John, which is really very emotive, you know, there's a lot of cases where John of Ephesus, for instance, says, it, it's, it's, it's almost like a Syriac refrain, where he says, with, with what tears should I have wept? He's, he's not sh ashamed of his emotions. He, he speaks about being desensitized. He says, eventually we were drunk and we could not feel anything. Uh, you know, so, so John's description of his pandemic that he witnessed is very emotive. It's, it's very impassioned. Then we have Cyprian's account. And he speaks about this pandemic that was also ravaging the Roman Empire at this time. What that plague was, we don't exactly know. We're fairly certain that John's plague was most likely a bubonic plague, but uh, the plague of Cyprian, the pandemic in Cyprian's time, we're not sure about because we don't have very uh, clear descriptions of the plague. So some have said that it might have been smallpox, which I think is possible. Uh, others have said that it could have been a form of uh, pandemic influenza. Others have said that it might have been even a type of hemorrhagic fever, almost like Ebola. Because John speaks, uh, excuse me, not John, uh, Cyprian says, uh, and I quote uh, Cyprian, he says, uh, and this is his description of the symptoms of the plague. He says, uh, this trial, of course it refers to the plague, that now the bowels relaxed into a constant flux discharged the bodily strength, so we have diarrhea, that a fire originated in the marrow ferments into wounds and the forces, so it's, there's clearly fever, that the intestines are shaken with continual vomiting, that the eyes are on fire with injected blood, and, and that's interesting, that, that he speaks of eyes that are uh, bloodied, and that, of course, could be smallpox, hemorrhagic smallpox, but, of course, it could also be a hemorrhagic fever. And he continues to describe this plague. So we're not sure what this plague was, but it was very serious, and it was very viral, probably. But Cyprian's account is almost stoic. He's not nearly as emotive as, uh, as John of Ephesus. So we find a very different description of the plague by Cyprian compared to that of John. That, that's very interesting. So, so how, how would you explain it? How would you explain the difference, the drastic difference between how both these people, both these churchmen experienced a pandemic in their times or an outbreak, at least in their times? I think they are shaped by of course, by their upbringing and their culture. John comes from Roman Syria. Uh, it's a very different context, uh, a very different culture. Cyprian uh, is very Roman in his outlook. And as I said, I think his approach is almost stoic. And it's interesting because it's not as if Cyprian was removed from the plague. He also witnessed it and he even cared for people. So, so in very much the same way as John, he was exposed to it. Um, interesting that neither of these persons actually died from the plague. So what's the reason for Cyprian's uh, approach is most likely because the context there is one of martyrdom. Uh, and in his account, uh, it's one of Cyprian's treatises called uh, De Mortalitate, uh, which is basically on the plague. And in fact, one of the issues that Cyprian keeps on bringing up is the problem of martyrdom, because it's interesting. He says to people, don't grieve. Now, that's interesting because John is grieving, but Cyprian says, don't grieve. Uh, you should not grieve. You should, in fact, see this plague as something that can strengthen you. It's something that can shape you. And if you die of it, you go to Christ earlier. 
and so that's good. So that's that's what Cyprian is saying. The main issue that he seems to also be concerned about is the fact that some people are now concerned that they won't have an opportunity to die as martyrs because it was also the period of the so-called Decian persecution. So it's a very different context, whereas in John's context, it's already a Christian empire. Christianity has developed to a great extent. In Cyprian's time, the context is very different and the issues facing Cyprian are different from those that faces John. So I think you've nicely laid out change over time, right? As a good historian would, right? Differences in, in context, I think, really matter. Are there things that maybe are similar across that influence uh, what they're doing? And if so, maybe what are those themes? Yeah, they, they definitely are uh, similarities. I'm still trying to pin them all down as my work is uh, developing. But <clears throat> what I've come to notice is that uh, with John as well as with Cyprian and with others. I mean, there are other Christian authors also writing about plagues, many, many others. The discourse of plague is always situated within the issue of virtue. So they aren't simply concerned about giving information about the plague. That's why we as historians can sometimes become frustrated by these sources. But they weren't written for us. They didn't have us in mind. They wanted these uh, accounts to teach their readers, audience, whatever. They wanted the accounts to teach them something. So they wanted to, in some way or another, affect the behavior and the character of the audience. Uh, so the plague is, the discourse of plague at least, is embedded within the discourse of virtue. That's something that I found in early Christian sources to be very, very constant. And another thing that also seems to be a constant is the type of uh, language that is about the righteousness of God and the problem of theodicy. All of them are asking, why is God allowing this? Why is God allowing death on such a massive scale? For an ancient society where many understood illness to be the cause of, inter or at least the result of internal causes, plague was a particular problem. The doctors of antiquity had different explanations for plague. It was mostly um, polluted air, you know, but plague was, was, it was something different to them and they had to make sense of it. One of the issues that both Cyprian and John, for instance, tried to address is why are Christians and non-Christians suffering from this? Why is everyone being punished? Cyprian, of course, says, well, death is, dying on earth is not a punishment. It's what comes after death. <laughs> so, so he's clever. But there's a lot of constants um, in, in these early Christian accounts. So, I mean, if, if we want to move from the, the, from the discourse level to writing more positivist history, for, for lack of a better term, how, how can we use the discursive approach, if at all, to write a new narrative of what a pandemic actually means, what, what, what actually happened? Because, I mean, there's always obviously importance in discourse, but there's also, it, it is also important, at least for some people, me included, to try and figure out what happened. Facts is kind of simplistic, but let's say facts. What were the facts of, on the ground at the time? Uh, absolutely. These are, are really important 
questions. And I think, I think the discursive approach helps us to write that type of history better because we can be more, uh, it, it enables us at least to be a little more skeptical about, skeptical about certain sources. And as Mal said earlier, to sort of situate them in a particular context. And in fact, this is what I'm trying to do in, in, in my work and in the book that I hope to finish at some point. The first thing I think that we need to do is before writing this, a new narrative of, of a pandemic, we also, there's a measure of deconstruction needed. So, um, because there are already current scholarly discourses about plagues that also need to be evaluated and critiqued, which you both are doing so well, really. Uh, so one of the things that worried me is that many scholarly works to an extent uh, take the ancient sources at face value without necessarily doing close readings. It might be because not everyone can read Greek, Syriac, Latin, and perhaps even Coptic in order to really do close reading. This can be a challenge. Um, so the ancient sources don't tell us what we, what we want to know. So when we are writing this new history, new narrative of a pandemic, it can help us to actually ask, well, what are the sources telling us? And what, can, what can't they tell us? That's, that, I think, is very important. Another thing to do then is to, comp to collate and compare the sources. And uh, this is important because then we can, can actually see what matches across the sources. And this is where, if you're interested in the facts about the pandemic, this is where it can become important. So again, if I were to use the Justinianic plague as an example, the numbers given by John are actually quite close to the numbers given by Procopius. And I don't think, they don't come from the same manuscript history, as far as I know. So they are two independent sources that give us details that match. So it's actually wonderful to have these sources from the same period giving the same details uh, in very different ways. I sometimes like to say the more different sources are, the, more, the, the easier it can be to see their similarities, uh, if you know what I mean, because Procopius and John are very different, but they agree on certain things, and then we can make more decisions. It sounds like there's actually two projects, I think, both in Lee's question and your response. There's one project that looks at the discourse about plague and pandemics and how people situate that in their time period, which might not actually give you the quote-unquote facts of what's happening, but is actually going to explain to you how people thought about plague and pandemics. And then there's the other story, which I think maybe Lee is more interested in, or I don't know if you are, Lee, I don't want to put words in your mouth, which is what happened on the ground, right? What is the social history and how can we extrapolate out from that? And again, I, I think you can do both at once, but I think it's important to note that they are two different things and to then take the literary sources out of their context and to plop them down in the other factual approach um, is always going to be problematic. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm also, I sort of classify myself as well as a social and a cultural historian. So um, when we look at these sources, we can make a few conclusions about what might have really happened. We know that they were in highly populated areas. There were probably high mortality rates. There were issues with managing the dead. There were problems with burial. We, we know this, uh, they were economic problems, even if they are often mythologized, even if they are embedded in, in certain religious and cultural discourses. And, and that can really help us uh, to better understand what actually happened and better understand sort of 
the facts about an ancient plague. So I don't think, I think the two approaches com really complement each other. It, it helps to do social history when one is aware of the, of the discursive aspects, because you're absolutely right. These plagues happened, you know, they, they, it's, it's not just stories. People died, real people died, real things happened. And uh, we need to try to ask what happened as well. And I think that uh, is an important question that needs to be answered. Yeah, I, I think they're, as I said, two, two sides of the same coin to use that, that idea. But they are, you have to be aware of that there's two different approaches as you do both of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, to, to tie this back to where we kind of started at, so COVID-19, how would their discursive approach be reflected in the present, if at all? with regards to the current pandemic we're living through? Uh, I think it's definitely reflected um, and something that uh, I'm really interested in. Uh, so we've seen this, another discourse come to the fore, namely the, the discourse and the practice of social distancing, for instance. Uh, if, if I mentioned this concept to you before, the pandemic struck, we would not have really understood what we're talking about. But now it's really central. Uh, this notion of lockdown, for instance, that's one that I'm interested in because the idea of a lockdown, which sounds almost violent in itself, you know, it's almost like something you would expect from The Handmaid's Tale, <laughs> essentially. It's, it's this lockdown and, and, and it's a suspension of rights, of course, and we understand why these things happen. But, but the way we speak about it, the way we describe the things we do, make a difference. So uh, Foucault himself has done a lot of work on quarantine, for instance, which has been helpful to me. And this idea of uh, self-quarantine, you know, self-isolation is also very interesting to me because I'm also interested in, in slavery and also notions of incarceration and prisons and, and that sort of thing. So what I'm doing in my project is to also sort of ask what new carceralities uh, come from pandemics, what new forms of confinement or imprisonment, so to speak, uh, developed from a pandemic such as COVID-19. Uh, also, uh, we are uh, in the news and the media, we are constantly using terms like normal or the new normal. You know, things will never be normal again. We've got a new normal that's coming. But that inevitably means that we also now have a new understanding of what is pathological. Uh, this is something that the French philosopher Georges Canguilhem has taught us. So at the early stages of the pandemic, for instance, elderly persons and persons with uh, so-called comorbidities were especially flagged as being vulnerable to COVID-19. And that's true. And, and that was a very important observation. But we need to ask what, are, what the effects are when we speak of persons with certain health conditions in these ways. And when other people who usually don't have these health conditions and these sort of comorbidities, as they're called, what happens when apparently healthy people uh, subject these non-healthy people, according to the discourse, to forms of isolation and, and quarantine? So what I'm worried is, has the way that we've been speaking about COVID-19 created new categories of so-called normals and abnormals and pathologicals? And when does quarantine and isolation become marginalization and oppression? 
these, these are really uh, difficult questions that we need to address. It's not about whether lockdowns or social distancing are right or wrong or good or bad. Uh, we know the science behind it and it's very important. But rather, what are the effects of these concepts and discourses and the ways of speaking? That, that's quite uh, important. I yeah, I think what's become quite apparent in the last few days, at least in the United States, with what's happening here, is is a reflection upon you know do we want to go back to this quote unquote normal period right i mean the normal period wasn't sufficient for solving a lot of the inequalities in the country so going back to that seems not the way forward and clearly that's what's among other things uh, happening in the us and many cities right now so the question is how can you use this right to make a better society moving forward yeah and studying the history of pandemics can help us to see whether some pandemics actually did bring about a lot of social change and where others have nothing has really changed. Um, so, I mean, I mean, something that really stood out to me were the ethnic issues. Uh, being, being in South Africa, uh, race and ethnicity are really uh, issues that are constantly in the forefront. And I was a bit concerned when uh, certain people called it a Chinese virus, uh, for instance. Uh, and in South Africa, what's very interesting, according to a local newspaper article I read uh, a couple of weeks ago, COVID-19 was initially seen as a white disease that white elite people got from traveling abroad. And it was something that rich people got. Um, it was an article in the in the Daily Maverick. So, and, and this is, in South Africa, it's, it's very acute because we have a very underdeveloped and fragile public health system. So for instance, um, if people understand the virus to be something and the, you know, something very specific and related to a certain ethnicity or certain group of people, then the precautions to implement social distancing can become uh, tricky. So the way we think and talk about a pandemic is just as important, I think, as the way we manage it medically. It's, it's not, it will be a drain, or at least it will be a pressure, it will put pressure on one's public health system, but it will also put pressure on, the, on a country's judiciary. Uh, and, the, and a lot of discourse is also formulated in the judiciary. So I'm curious to see what will happen in this regard and various court pronouncements in South Africa and abroad, how the discourse in that regard will, will eventually become structured with regards to COVID-19. I mean, it, it's, it has been said pretty frequently, but it's, it's worth mentioning again that, that these discourses as COVID-19 being a Chinese virus or a white person virus, I mean, are usually politicized. I mean, they're, they're being used politically by groups, by individuals to, to fit their existing, often existing worldviews and ideologies and, and to make a point. So, so in essence, discourse is being, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure weaponized is the right word, but it, it sure is close. I think it's, it's, it's important because how we speak about a pandemic, uh, the discourse of a pandemic, can have very, very serious consequences for political and social policies. You know, discourse is something that eventually is translated into policy and policy making. And in that regard, we, need, we do need to be uh, very careful and very, very aware of how we talk about these things. Yeah, I, what was struck me about your your John of Ephesus discussion about greed and money and what we would now call economics, right? I mean, he would never use that term, is 
this entire pandemic is now being driven through the lens of economics at the end of the day. I mean, what did we all talk about at the beginning was when is our respective place opening up, right? Whatever that means essentially is tied to economics. And now many of these analyses of past pandemics, whether it be 1918 or the Black Death or take your favorite one, whatever you want to do, is now looked for what are the economic implications of it, which actually tells us, I think, a lot about our own personal discourses today are driven so much by a market economics. But it's also a stage, right? So COVID-19 didn't start by having economics as its main discourse. So earlier on, the the big discourse was social distancing and and self-isolation or self-quarantining. Yes and no, right? I mean, the New York Times almost immediately had the number of unemployment people filing, right? This chart where it was just off the chart, 3 million people in a week, right? I mean, that was, at least as the United States media discourse, The two things we saw were, yes, the what is the disease, how do we stop it? But the other one that's always been side by side has just been this overarching economic. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I think, uh, I mean, this is how discourses work. This is the dynamic way in which we constantly structure knowledge. I mean, uh, a discourse is never set in stone. It, it keeps on developing and particularly the discourse of a pandemic. And, uh, you know, Foucault used a very um, apt phrase when, uh, to, to refer to what you were speaking about, Noel. Uh, Foucault said, we, we want to write histories of the present. And essentially, I think that is really what a discursive approach tries to do. It try, and what social history also tries to do, I think, is it, it tries to give us a history of the present when we approach these past pandemics with questions in our own, in our own mind, with, with some of the issues that we are currently experiencing. Uh, so uh, we will always do that. I think it's inevitable. So before we finish off, do you think there is anything we could learn from the late antique sources that, that would be relevant to the current pandemic? I definitely think there are some important things we can learn. And I think this is really an important question. And, and it goes back to what I just said uh, about writing a history of the present. Um, so again, to, to reiterate what I've said a few times, uh, how we speak about pandemics is important and it can have serious consequences for political and social policies. Uh, And we are coming to realize that it is as much an economic and a cultural and a religious and a social problem as it is a a medical problem. And by looking at the light antique sources, we can create a type of a narrative that will help us to understand how plagues might have functioned uh, socially, economically, uh, religiously, in, in whatever way you're interested in. And the late antique sources are quite descriptive in this regard. They can really help us. The good thing about the late antique sources is we have several sources describing the same plague. So, so that can be really very helpful uh, in that regard. The other thing that we also need to uh, take cognizance of is the fact that for years, um, the Black Plague was, for better or worse, our frame of reference for understanding and managing pandemics. Uh, and that has changed, let's be very honest. Uh, and COVID-19 will become and probably already is our new framework for how we will understand the next one that will inevitably hit us whenever. So if we can better understand how plagues are, on the one hand, discursively constructed, and on the other hand, these hard facts that you were speaking about, Lee, 
um, from late antiquity and even, even before that, we could perhaps learn a few things on how we choose to structure this new framework for a pandemic. And then finally, and, and this I get from John of Ephesus especially, uh, we need to create a space for people to tell their stories. This is, this is very important because the way people tell stories today is they will be read in, in the coming ages when the next pandemic hits. So although late antique sources give numbers and statistics, it should never just be about the numbers. By telling his story, John not only gives us a, he doesn't give us a clinical and a dry account of a plague, but he lets uh, slip something of his humanity. And, and in doing this, so many new paths of meaning are created. It is a chance to show our humanity, to connect with those who experienced plague and pandemics in history. And it, it happened to me personally um, that I had read John's account of the Justinianic plague before COVID-19. And then I read it again during the pandemic. And it was two totally different experiences. I, I could, because now I was, in a sense, more or less living it as well. And, and in that regard, I could see something about our common shared humanity, our common experience, and how we tell stories is important because we tell stories in order to deal with trauma and in order to make ourselves better. And, and that's something that we should not take lightly, I think, because discourse and discursive analysis often comes down to stories people told. Yeah, I like that point um, in particular that you shared about reading it before and reading it after or during, I guess. Um, I haven't gone back and read John since we've gone through this, I think, to be very fair, partially because I don't have a lot of time, but I think also because I was, for a lot of this, reading other pandemic disease books. I mean, that's something I read quite a bit of, obviously, and I had to put those down. I you know, just picked up a random standard political narrative history because it was too tough for me to actually keep reading these stories of people dying. So it'd be interesting if I picked that back up again. Yeah, I was uh, picking up other stories as well. Um, I mean, I've been reading some of Martin Luther's accounts of the plague in his time. And I was also surprised to see how many uh, uh, commonalities there are with religious discourse today. Uh, I wrote a short article on for a local uh, South African journal on punishment, you know, divine punishment, because that was a major issue uh, at the beginning when this plague struck. And uh, one of the ministers of Zimbabwe actually said that COVID-19 is God's punishment to the West. <laughs> and, and, and that was something that you could pick, that you could have read out of a light antique text. Yeah. The one thing that I'll say that's interesting that I've always noticed as a difference between, say, Martin Luther, which is to say the second plague pandemic, the Black Death, and the late antique, plague outbreaks, at least in some of the sources, is in the late antique outbreak, some of the religious stuff actually works, right? I mean, you pray in a certain way and it stops it um, versus during the Black Death, that doesn't seem to work at all, right? I mean, no matter what you do, you're going to die. Yeah. So yeah, this has been a really wonderful conversation, both um, on the Justinianic plague in particular, but also I think more broadly on discourse and the importance of situating a source in its particular time and context to understand how that way of thinking frames how they write, both for people in the late antique world, and especially I think this last discussion we had about uh, how COVID-19 
will reflect both on us now and on the histories we write of the past. Yeah, and, and also to better understand or better connect to to the humanity of, of the people who left us these narratives from, in, in our case, 1,500 years ago, but from the past in general, just trying to understand what they've been through. And, and as both of you have said, the, the, the present pandemic helps us, helps us understand them a bit better. So I guess at this point, we can wrap things up. So I'd like to thank you very much, Chris, for taking the time and, and being on the podcast, sharing your research, your ideas with us. It, it's, it's been very insightful. And, and I kind of like jotted down ideas as we were speaking, which, which I'll definitely going to pursue. Thank you very much. It's really been a privilege to, uh, to be on this podcast. And uh, thank you for the invitation. And uh, I really look forward to listening to the other podcasts and those to come. And thank you, uh, uh, Mill and Lee, for your work, uh, which has really been a stimulus uh, in my own thought. Uh, it's, it's really very, very important. And as you just said, um, COVID-19 helps us to understand late antique sources, but perhaps the late antique sources might help us to understand COVID-19. Uh, Time will tell, I think. But from my side, thank you so much. Uh, it has really been a privilege. So, so that was very interesting i thought chris introduced some several new ideas that we we haven't heard or discussed before on the podcast particularly the discursive method uh, that was one of his, his central ideas yeah i think he makes a really good point about the need to read the sources both in their context but also in the framework of how those people were writing you know, as we were especially comparing it to COVID-19, for example, and how we think about pandemics, how people in the past think about pandemics is, is set within their own living conditions. And I think it's very easy to lose sight or lose track of it and just assume that they're operating with the same mindset that we're operating with. Yeah, I think when I pointed out and we then discussed for a bit how John of Ephesus' account of that uh, I think it's an Egyptian city or a Palestinian city, I always forget which one, are completely deserted and everyone's dead. That's what's always quoted, rather than, as he pointed out, this idea of, of greed being the real plague, the real pandemic. Yeah, he, he mentioned that, that the sources weren't written for us. I mean, I think that that's an exact quote of, of one of the things he said. So, so that these accounts that, that we mine, essentially, we mine for the details or, or things that interest us, so these accounts were originally, at least, supposed to, to teach something or, or affect the behavior of late antique audiences in this case. Yeah, and then I think too often we go into them with our own mindset looking for nuggets of economic or social facts rather than for what the stories they want to relate are. I think it's very easy because of our contemporary catastrophist mindset to accept their catastrophic descriptions of the world, which is rhetoric they use to try and make a point, teach something, rather than try to objectively represent reality. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. The other thing I thought was very interesting was one of his almost offhand remarks, but I thought was very telling that he mentioned that the Black Death is 
the framework for how we think about a lot of these plagues and pandemics, and you and I have done some work on this, but that perhaps moving forward, COVID-19 will actually be the new framework in which many of us think, certainly in the short term and perhaps for the long term. Yeah, this is something we kind of discussed off the podcast. We tried to figure out, I mean, what would happen with COVID-19? How would it change the way we think, the way we behave, the way we conceptualize the world? And I think, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty convinced that his point was correct. I mean, that now when we'll talk about pandemics 10 years in the future, the obvious pandemic would be COVID-19 rather than the Black Death, for better or for worse. Yeah, it's interesting. We've taken an approach in some of our first work on the Justinianic Plague, for example, to push back on the idea of catastrophic mortality, for example, because that was such a Black Death framework that was then projected onto the Justinianic Plague. And you could see, I think now pretty easily, people just saying they're perfectly happy rejecting that as well, but to say it still had profound economic and social implications in the sixth century because of what COVID-19 is doing today. Yeah, I think the discourse has definitely shifted. And, and you see it on, I mean, less so in formal academic publications, simply because these aren't really out yet, but definitely so on less formal fora, such as Twitter, for example. Yeah, I think that's a an interesting shift. And the question will become, do people just put aside our work on the mortality and other work on the mortality with this assumption of pandemics causing change as a central point in history? Yes. And there's also the question of whether COVID-19 will cause, will create or produce changes or not. I mean, at, at the moment, I the discourse I'm seeing is split. I mean, some people do seem to think that this is going to change some substantial ways in, in the way we think about reality, the way our societies operate, the way we consume, and, and so on. Other people seem to believe that we're going to get go back to normal, whatever normal was, but go back to normal after this all ends. Yeah, this is why I'm happy to be a historian and not a prognosticator, Lee. Well, Okay. <laughs> so so to, to, to wrap this entire episode up, we can follow the, the tradition and, and talk about something more lighthearted. I guess the summer plans could be a, a good option. Here, it's, it's definitely summer already. So let's talk about how our, our plans for vacation or travel or, or just summer plans. So what, what's, what's up with them? What's going to happen? At the moment, my summer plans are absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of depressing, Merle. There's nothing you're waiting to do. I mean, there's a lot of things I'm waiting to do, but the question is, what can we safely do? Right? I mean, I need a vacation. You know, I haven't taken a day off in about six weeks at least. Um, so that's been a little tiring. But I guess going out to nature is perfectly fine, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely doable, such as within the time constraints and the abilities of two and a half year olds. Um, yeah, I mean, we've talked about, we actually talked with our neighbor across the street last night. We were sitting on his porch and our kids were riding around on their vehicles, as they call them. We only teach them complicated <laughs> words. I, I'd like to point out, Lee. What about the lagomorphs? So my daughter only calls bunnies lagomorphs, but now we're working uh -huh. on getting her to only call elephants pachyderms. Uh -huh. 
So, and whenever anyone hears both of these things, they're just like, if they don't know us that well, they just look at us as if we're insane. Um, if they do know us well enough, we have some friends down the street who know that, you know, I have a PhD and they just look at me and they go, of course you did. Of course you taught your daughter, not bunnies, but, but lagomorphs. Even my father-in-law said, I think he said something like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> the, can she recognize that, that what he thinks is a lagomorph is a bunny? Oh, yeah, yeah. If you ask her what is that, she'll say lagomorph, and then she'll say bunny, rabbit, and she can do it in books and in stuffed animals and on the street. There's a bunny that runs around with house across the street. So she knows. It's just, it's all one word to her. Um, but back to the topic at hand. Um, yeah, I mean, we've talked about now um, renting a house somewhere and maybe going somewhere for a few days. Um, I think we're both getting both quite tired of being in our house in the general vicinity and just a need to do something else, whatever else that might be. So I think probably by July or August, we'll figure that out. Um, what about you, Lee? So, so I originally had plans to spend the summer in the United States, but that kind of got canceled pretty early on because of COVID-19. Traveling abroad is really beginning now. So I, I heard that Greece is kind of like allowing people from Israel, Israelis to, to come to Greece without being quarantined when they enter. So somewhere like that or somewhere else in the area, so Eastern Mediterranean, maybe the Caucasus, maybe Turkey, we might end up going on a short vacation there. We we want to, we hope to to go out camping, do some camping here in Israel. So it's going to be much more domestic than international. But I mean, I hopefully we'll still get some vacation. You've never traveled with uh, your daughter before, have you? No, no. Well, uh, we we have we have taken her away for I mean on an hour and a half drive. That was like the longest we've done. You haven't gone overnight. No, I, I, I look forward to the, you'll see how much stuff you have to bring, right? The smaller the child, the more crap you have to bring. This is what you learn, Lee. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm learning slowly, but so, so far I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself for being able to put her to sleep very easily now. That's, I'm very proud of myself. There's like a magic method. That's how I call it. It's the Lee's magic method. I heard people. I heard people charge like a lot of money for for sleep counseling. Uh, yeah, as I as I told you when, when when your wife was pregnant, I said anything you want for children, you can get for money. It's it's more <laughs> more than a wedding. You can find whatever you want if you're willing to pay for it. I mean, I, I can understand say. why. I mean, it it can drive you pretty much insane. I mean, not knowing what to do, especially as, as like a first time parent. Yeah, you don't know what you need. You don't know how to do it. And everything with children, as you know, takes just much longer to do. And so if you can cut shortcuts and depends on how much money you're willing to pay, right? I think I've told you my favorite, my favorite uh, accessory is the, the gloves, mittens that strap onto the stroller. Have I not told you about this? <laughs> I don't so think you, so. you can buy, the, they're very common in New York because most people don't have cars. Um, so you can get these giant gloves during oh, the yeah, winter. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that, I, that's, no. Yeah, that like stay attached. So then you're just slipping your hands in and out because you don't want to spend the time to take your gloves on and off constantly. That's actually useful though. I agree, but you're saving five seconds of your life and you're paying $100 <laughs> over the course of X amount, of, right? I mean, that's why I say it's a time money thing. 
Yeah, it's an entire new world that I wasn't really aware of be- before my daughter was born. So yeah, I'm, I'm being as, enlightened every day. As someone who's a, a minimalist in terms of <laughs> stuff, right? I mean, for an academic, I believe you've uttered the heresy, I hate books. I don't want books. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have very few hard copy books. Yeah, that's basically heresy. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what you end up getting. We'll leave it at that. We'll see, Merle. We'll see. Okay, so I guess uh, we, we can conclude our episode here. Until next time, stay safe, stay indoors, or go outdoors and stay safe. And we'll speak to you soon. <laughs>